0: We are in chapter three in Shmuel Bet, and we did the first ten verses, and we saw that Avner and Ishboshet, the son of Saul, they have a heated quarrel concerning Avner's alleged romance with Ritspa Bataya, who was Saul's concubine. And it doesn't matter whether these accusations against Avner are true or not; you can't really tell from the narrative. What's important is that this petty squabble is going to catapult David to the Malchut. And that's how Hashem works through natural means. He orchestrates events through these seemingly mundane interactions and the jealousy and the anger elicits the human responses that bring about the results that Hashem wants. And in this case, the suspicions of Ishboshit and the anger of Avner, that will eventually bring about the unification of David's kingdom. And we see that starts to come to fruition in the last verse we read, when Avner blows up at Ishboshit for accusing him of being with Saul's widow. And he says like this, that he's gonna transfer the kingdom and to establish the throne of David on all of Israel and of Judah, from Dan until Beersheba from the north to the south. Now, what suddenly brought about this change of heart, you know, causing Avner to turn his back on Beit Shaul and on each who up to now had been his king? Was it just this quarrel about Ritz-Babadiah? So, we got into that last week a little bit, and what's important is that Hashem is running the show. And again, in a natural way, David is about to be king over all of Israel, but it's not going to go smoothly. It's not going to be a smooth transition. Nothing goes smooth in the book of Shmuel, you know? So, okay, Avner now, as we said, he blows up at Ishboshit and he says, What am I, a dog watchman over in Yehuda? And then he says, After that, the verse we read, I'm going to bring the kingdom to David. Okay, so what's the reaction of Ishboshit to Avner's sudden eruption? says like this, And he could not answer Avner, another word, because of his fear of him. So after Avner said he's going to bring everything over to David, Ish-boshet has nothing left to say. Maybe he thought Avner was bluffing, just threatening to leave him. He didn't know he would do it for sure. After all, sometimes people say things out of anger. Maybe he didn't know that Avner really meant it. But certainly by Ishboshit's lack of reaction, it shows he really is a powerless king because if he's an acting king, I mean, he should have put Avner in his place right there. He would have said, I'm the king. You're the head of the army. You know, stay in your lane. But that's not what he did. That's not the situation here. Now, Rabbi Kahana in his commentary makes an interesting observation here. This is the second verse in this chapter where Ishboshit's name isn't mentioned. Even though you know we're talking about Ishbosheth, but his name is left out. The first time it happens is in verse seven in this chapter. It's just like this: Saul had a concubine named Ritzbah Bataya, and he said to Avner, "Why were you with my father's concubine?" Now we know it was Ishbosheth talking to Avner, but the verse doesn't say it. It just says, "And he said to Avner." Well, when we learned this verse last week, we said, well, that's the Bible being economical with words. We know it's Ishboshit addressing Avner, so scripture doesn't have to tell us. And again, now here in the verse we just read, it says, And he could not answer Avner out of great fear. Again, he could not answer him. You could say Ishboshit couldn't answer him, but no, again, his name is left out. So you could say, well, scripture didn't mention his name because it's obvious we're talking about Ishboshit. But when you think about it, up to now, his name hasn't even been mentioned yet in our chapter, even though he's a very important part of the chapter. The chapter centers around him and his name is left out. So Rabbi Ghani says that scripture is doing this. It's leaving out his name because it wants to show that ish and his kingdom are disappearing. That's why his name is disappearing. And I'll read the words of Rabbi Ghana right here and translate it. Shuv, again, just like in verse seven, the scripture does not, does not explicitly say the name of Ishboshit. And perhaps this is a hint to the fact that his kingdom is going, going, gone. potech shall siluko. is preparing the final stage of his departure. The <speaking in Hebrew> Ishboshit. And it's like Ishboshit doesn't exist anymore. Allah, <speaking> Shehu, <in Hebrew> He might not realize it. He may not realize that he's disappearing, but he is. And now the rabbi addresses the fact that ish had nothing to say to Avner. He says like this, it's very likely, maybe he did have something to respond to Avner, but he couldn't because he was frightened of him. ish Ishboshet is of a weak character. He's just not a leader type. And by the way, that doesn't mean he's a bad guy. Not everybody's cut out to be the king. He knows it's only because of Avner, Haisha Chazak. He's the strong man. That's the reason he rules. He rules because of Avner. And he's scared to death. He is scared to death that Avner will actualize his threat because he knows he needs Avner. And that's why he's quiet. He's hoping that Avner will come down and will reconcile with him. But it's too late. The Almighty has already sealed his fate. Okay, so let's see how Avner begins the process of transferring the kingdom of David, like he said he would, How's he going to do it? So we look at verse 12. It says like this. So Avner, he doesn't go himself at the beginning to David. He sends messengers to David. That's what it says. He sends messengers to David, from his place, saying, to whom does the land belong? Now, the commentators take Two possible directions. What that means when he addresses David and says "Lemiyaharets," he could be talking about David. "Lemiyaharets," who does the land belong to? If not you? Kind of like what Shmuel said to Shaul: "Lemikholchemdat If you remember when Shaul first met Shmuel, Shmuel said to Saul to hint to him that he's going to be the king. He said, "Lemikholchemdat Yisrael," who is the affection of all of Israel? So it could be Avner is saying "Lemiyaharets," to whom does the land belong to? So that's the first Perush, the interpretation, that he's talking about David. But he could be talking about Hashem. By saying, Lemia Aretz, it may be just what we call a Lashanshua. He could be swearing in the name of he, Hashem, whom the land belongs to. And that's how he begins his message, "le Aretz. Okay, that's how he opens. And this is now what he says to David, Lemor. And he said, Karatata Britcha Iti, make a pact with me or a covenant with me, Vihine Yadi Imach, And my hand will be with you, la sev alech et call Yisrael to bring all of Israel around to you. Okay, so now let's look at this message that Avner sends to David. The very fact that he says to David, make a covenant with me or make an agreement with me. First of all, that means that Avner sees himself as an equal to David. The other thing you gotta notice here. You have to appreciate the influence of Avner. I mean, it's immense. He has the ability to bring all the tribes over to David the way he did for Yishboshet. He's going to now do it for David. So his political sway is like unreal. And we saw a Midrash back in chapter 26 in Shmuel Aleph when David said to Avner, Remember that? He said, who was like you in Israel? Even though David said it kind of sarcastically, the Midrash came and said, on that line, Mika Mochab Israel, who is like you in all of Israel, they said that Avner used to say that if the world, or if the globe, we'll call it, had a handle on it, I would be able to shake it. And the idea is that he has the world in his hands. He has such influence, he just says the word, and he'll transfer the kingdom from Mishposhet to David, just like that. Now, having said all that, you have to realize that David, he would have been the king over all of Israel anyway, without Avner. I mean, it was happening organically. His popularity was already spreading. We saw the verses, how Beit David was growing and Beit Shaul was diminishing. So it was going to happen without Avner, but this certainly hastens the process. Now there's one part of the verse that is very, very weird and clumsy. And all the commentators are going to chime in on this. And that's the part of the verse where it says like this. V'yishlach Avner malachim David takhtav. And Avner sent messengers Tachtav. So he said in his place. Tachtav could be that. He sent messengers from his place. Tachtav. But Tachtav could also be instead of him. He sent messengers in his stead. Just like you say an eye for an eye. It's ayin, tachet ayin a tooth for a tooth. Shen takhtshen. Shen Tachat can mean instead. So the simple understanding could be that Avner sent messengers instead of him to take his place. He sent messengers on his behalf. And the thing is, though, that the word tachtav really is superfluous in the verse. You don't really need it. All you had to say was Avner sent messengers. That's it. You don't have to say tachtav instead of him or from his place, in his place. The word tachtav is really unnecessary. And you know that when you have weirdness in the verse they have this extra word you know there's a Midrash hanging out somewhere and this is what Midrash rabba says in Leviticus Rabba 26.2 it says like this in the letter that Avner sent to David he mentioned his name first and tahtav, and under that he mentioned David's name see tahtav has another meaning it means instead but it also means under right Tacht is you're behind under and so according to Chazal, Tachtav from the word underneath that Avder put his name on the top and David's on the bottom. That's what the sages gleaned from the verse and he sent messengers Tachtav. Tachtav here meaning under. Now that doesn't sound like such a terrible thing, but according to Chazal, that is one of the reasons that Avder was punished when Yoav kills Avder later in this chapter. Chazal bring a couple of sins that Avner committed. One of these sins is that Avner is blamed for delaying the kingdom of David for two years. That was wrong, propping up ish that way, and delaying Machut David. And then they mention something else, why he was deserving of punishment. And they say it's this letter that he wrote to David that he put David's name under his name, Tachtav. Now, that seems a little bit harsh. Avner was killed because of that? Well, Rabbi Gahan had mentioned in his commentary, I don't know if I brought it last week, but when Avner is bringing the kingdom to David here, what's driving him? He's being driven by a lot of ego. It was ego that prevented him from acknowledging David's kingdom. I know he was relying on that verse, that kings will come out of your loins and so forth, but we could have understood that verse in a lot of ways. So it was ego that prevented him from acknowledging David's kingdom. And it's ego too that's motivating him here to leave ish and bring the people over to David. Now, how do the sages express this ego? How do they do it? By gleaning off this verse, he put his name above David's name. That's the way of the Midrash to show the gaiva, the arrogance involved and how that's motivating Avner. It's not really the letter itself that caused the punishment, but the sages use it as a vehicle to convey the idea of arrogance being the driving force of Avner. Because a lot of times people could do the right thing but the question is, what's their motive? Okay, so Avner sends this message to David, which is, let's cut a pact, let's make an agreement, and I'll bring all the tribes to you. So let's see David's response to that in verse 13. Vayomer, and David said, Tov, okay, I'll make an agreement with you. But there's one thing I ask of you. Loter Panai, don't even think of coming in my presence. Kiemlifnechait Michal Bat unless you bring me Michal, the daughter of Saul, bevochal Rot Panai, when you come to see me. So David is saying, You want to make an agreement? You want to make a pact? You want to come over to Hevron? Bring Michal Bat with you. Then we can talk. That's David's condition. And he continues to explain this condition in the next verse. This time now, he's going to address Ishboshit, which is interesting. After he said that to Avner, the next verse, he's addressing Ishboshit. Either he's doing this because he's not waiting for Avner, or he wants to make it more official, wants to show respect, or maybe he's just waiting for Avner's answer. And in the meantime, he addresses Ishboshit. And he says like this in verse 14. And David sent messengers, to Ishboshit, the son of Saul, saying, Tana et ishti et Michal, Give to me my wife Michal, asher astila who I betrothed to myself with a hundred Philistine foreskins. So that's David's message to Ishboshit, who happens to be Michal's brother. And he basically says to Ishbosheth what he said to Avner, but he adds that Michal, the one I married with a hundred Philistine foreskins, Okay, so that's David's condition that we're not going to even continue without bringing Michal back to me. Now you can read these verses and say, oh, wow, it's so romantic. David wants his wife back. He hasn't seen her for over seven years. I mean, the last we saw them together, she was helping him escape out of the window because her father was trying to kill David. And ever since David escaped that day from her window, they haven't seen each other. So he wants her back. They had been forcibly separated. Because of his dispute with Saul and the house of Saul, and so he wants her back. He loves her. She's not only his first wife, but she was most sin for him. Right when she let him out the window that day, she saved him. And before that, she put a dummy in the bed. I mean, she went all out for him. Not only that, how did he marry her? Like he says here, he brought back a hundred foreskins. Actually, he brought back two hundred. He was machmir. He brought back two hundred foreskins to get her. And David mentions it here. So he wants her back. Because when you give of yourself like that, right? Your connection to that person is more intense. It's like with Rachel and Yaakov. Yaakov's love for Rachel was so intense, not only because he loved her at first sight, but he worked for her for 14 years. He was Moshe Nefesh. So when you make that investment, you're connected more to that person. The more you invest and dedicate yourself to someone, the stronger the love and connection is. And David sacrificed himself to get those tortured foreskins. So yeah, he really wants Michal back. Okay, that's the romantic angle. But of course, it's not just romance here that's driving David to demand Michal back. You know, it's never that simple. To most of the commentators, it's a political move. Now that doesn't contradict that he doesn't love her madly, but there's a lot of politics involved too. The Malbeam reminds us that David is Saul's son-in-law. So he too, is really part of Beit Shaul. But when he's separated from Michal all the time, nobody thinks of David's connection to Beit Shaul, to Saul. So by reuniting with Michal, that reminds everyone over in the house of Saul that David, he has a claim to the throne through his marriage with Michal. He's connected to Saul, that's good for him. That helps him get unity amongst the tribes. That's one of the reasons he wants Michal with him. It's beneficial to David politically. By bringing back Michal, you're reminding everyone that, hey, my wife is Saul's daughter. You guys claim to be Hasidu of Saul. I'm married to his daughter. Okay, so these are all some of the reasons that David is making the demand of returning Michal. We have romantic reasons, political reasons, but the reason most commentators talk about is something else. They say that David is making this a condition. Again, it's a political motive. What he's saying here is, You want to make a deal, Avner? You want to come here and make a pact with me? Then break the Pesach Halacha of your Rebbe. Break that halachic ruling of Saul in which he invalidated the marriage of David to Michal. Only when you do that, then I'll know that you're truly in my camp. And let's go back to that for a minute. Let's go back to how David married Michal in the first place. Remember that Saul was hanging Michal as bait for David to go to war with the Philistines and get himself killed. Saul was dishonest from the beginning with David when it came to his daughters. We saw that back in Shmuel Aleph, chapter 18, verse 21, he said, Saul said, I'll give her my daughter and she'll be a snare to him. And what did Saul do? He asked that David bring a dowry, a hundred Philistine foreskins. David brought back two hundred. And when David returned with those 204 foreskins, it says like this, It says that when Saul saw that, he knew that Hashem was with David. And Michal Bat Shaul loved David. And then what happened after that? And now we get to the Taklas we want to get to. When David fled Saul altogether, remember it said that Saul gave Michal to Paltiel ben Laish. He gave Michal to another man. Now, Saul doesn't just do things like that. He's a from Jew. He's not going to give his daughter over to somebody else. That's eshadish. That's, that's adultery. How could Saul give her over to another man if she's married to David? So we said back then that Saul ruled that when David married Michal with those foreskins, it wasn't shavet Pruta. It wasn't worth anything to marry someone. You have to give her to betroth her, to espouse her, an item that's shavet Pruta. That's worth at least a penny. Today, we do with a ring. And Saul said that those foreskins aren't even worth a penny. And therefore, the marriage is invalid. On that basis, he disqualified David's marriage to Michal and thus was able to give her over to somebody else. And so David comes along here and he says, give me back my wife who Saul invalidated, claiming that those 100 foreskins or 200 foreskins weren't worth a pruta. They weren't worth a penny. Well, they are worth a pruta. It was a legitimate kiddushin. And so now David is making a statement there and he's saying, bring back the wife that Saul took from me. Only then you can come into my presence. I'll see your face. And when you do that, I'll know that you broke the sack of your Rebbe. And that's why David says in our verse here, give me my wife, Michal, who I betrothed with a hundred Philistine foreskins. That's why he mentions it. He's saying it was a legitimate kiddushin. That halachic ruling that Saul made, that we weren't really married because the foreskins weren't shavet pruta that was an incorrect ruling. And you're going to fix that by bringing back Michal, and you're going to prove that he was wrong. Now, we still have a problem of David taking back his ex if she was already with another man. If she was with Paladin Ben Leish, according to Jewish law, you can't take back your ex if she was with somebody else in the interim. So how can he take her back? Well, back in chapter 25 of Shmuel Aleph, when Saul gave Michal over to Paltiel, we touched upon this subject. Now, according to our sages, Paltiel, he never slept with Michal. He put a sword between him and Michal so he won't be tempted to touch her. That's what Chazal say because he realized that this whole thing might not be kosher, that Saul is pulling off a foil stick. And so to his merit, he placed a sword between him and Michal so he won't be intimate with her. But David doesn't know what's going on in their bedroom. So how can he take her back? Because like we said, you can't take back your ex if she was with somebody else in the meantime. Well, one of the listeners to our uh, Shua here, Atam Chochem, his name is Peretz Teller, he came up with a pretty good answer why David was allowed to take her back because Michal might have been what we call a noose. That means she was forced to be with somebody against her will. And in such a situation, you can take your ex back. That's what happened in the Purim story. When Esther was with Ahasuerus, she was a noose. She had no choice. And so according to the opinion that she was married to Mordechai, Mordechai was allowed to take her back because up to that point, she had been forced to be with Ahasuerus. But when Mordechai told Esther, you have to now go to Ahasuerus, you have to initiate it because she wasn't with the king already for a long time. Now you have to initiate intimacy with him. At that point, she can't go back to Mordechai. One of the reasons Esther didn't want to do it is because she knew that if she initiates and she's not a nusai anymore, then she can't go back to Mordechai. And so again, we can say that David was allowed to take Michal back because she might have been a noose. Now we saw other answers to this dilemma. The Obarbanel said that Paltiel never really married her. He was like a guardian. He was just guarding over her because Saul was worried about her mental state when David ran away. Anyway, that's David's condition for any kind of agreement or meeting or pact with Avner. And now the ball is in Avner's court, and we'll see what he does. And we'll also, you know, next year, get a closer look at this Paltiel ben Laish fellow who will now have to concede Michal. She's going to be taken from him and given to David, and we'll examine some of the sources to see his reaction to that. And then, of course, after these conditions are met and Michal is returned to David, Avner Benair is going to take a little trip to Hevron to meet up with David. Stay tuned.